I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And to most of my audience, how often do you think about how you access the internet? And I don't mean that in the general sense, like I'm gonna use this app real quick, or let me pop on Amazon to purchase this Vitamix. I mean the actual act of accessing it. The descriptive text you read underneath an item for sale, the buttons you click or tap to signal an intent or complete an action, or an input field to type a credit card number, select your country or state, or scroll through a set of dates to enter your birthday. The nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty, the stuff that, for many of us, fades away as we look at dank memes or doom scroll through the latest news. But this stuff is important, vital even. Our guest this week dedicates his time to ensuring that the digital world is accessible to everyone. Jenison Asuncion is a digital accessibility leader, having worked in the industry for the last 14 years. Currently, he is LinkedIn's head of accessibility engineering evangelism. Part of his responsibilities include assuring LinkedIn's engineers working on the web, as well as iOS and Android apps, have the training and support they need to ship products that are accessible to everyone, especially people with disabilities. Last June, Business Insider named Jenison as, quote, one of 30 power players helping new CEO Ryan Loslansky run LinkedIn. Jenison, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for the invite. Well, you are very welcome. Now, as we talked about in the lead up to me hitting record, I've been a fan of technology for <laughs> probably at least the last 20 years. It's something I've been very fascinated with, really interested in. And I'm kind of a huge geek when it comes to things like Apple, Tesla, SpaceX, Amazon, Google, you name it. But one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is really how little I know and kind of appreciate about things like accessibility in web design, internet accessibility, app design. And when I came across your profile on LinkedIn and started following you on Twitter, I thought that you would be the perfect person to discuss this topic because you're an evangelist yourself. So to start off, I'd love to talk about May 20th, which will be the 10th anniversary of the Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which you co-founded in 2012 with LA-based web developer Joe Devon, who I believe now lives in Silicon Beach, an area I frequented for my work in the advertising world. And to quote the Global Accessibility Awareness Day's website, quote, the purpose of GAD is to get everyone talking, thinking, and learning about digital, which includes web, software, mobile, etc., access and inclusion, and people with different disabilities, end quote. So what led you and Joe to initially create this Global Accessibility Awareness Day? And what happens on the day? And what is the broader purpose of it outside of the quote that I just read? Sure. And that quote is a mouthful, by the way. I'm pleasantly surprised <laughs> you were able to get through that one. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of, of this whole thing. So Joe and I had been not knowing of each other up until 2011. I was back in Toronto at the time. He was in Los Angeles doing his thing. So Joe, on his end, was heavily connected and networked within the Silicon Beach community and doing all that kind of stuff. A lot of meetups and all kinds of stuff on back-end, front-end development, all that kind of thing. Meanwhile, I was back in Canada. One of the areas of interest, so I'd been working in accessibility since 06. One of the areas that was fascinating to me was trying to just figure out ways to make accessibility accessible, for lack of a better term, to a mainstream designer or developer. So one of the things I had done in 2011, I'm, I think it's 2011, it's, it's so far along back now, but in 2011, I started up an accessibility camp in Toronto. And it was true what they said, if you invite people on a Saturday and serve pizza, 
people will show up. <laughs> and people did. And, and, and <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> right, right. And, and it was all these sessions on different aspects of digital access and inclusion, which you and I will touch upon as we chat. But so that's where everything started. And then I started up a meetup group and I was just doing all that kind of stuff and building community, this and that, and active on Twitter here and there, all those kind of good things. Then flash forward to November of 2011. And I was just on Twitter and I had come across one of these auto tweets that said something to the effect of like, Joe Devon tweeted this thing about wanting to create a day on, on accessibility. So again, totally by happenstance, I came across this tweet. He and I had not known each other or anything. Clicked on the tweet, read his blog post, and it essentially was a rant. Because if I know anything about tech people, it's if they get a bee in their bonnet and they, they own a blog, they're going to rant about it on their blog. And he essentially said like, Developers don't need to understand a little bit about accessibility, and many developers don't even know what a screen reader is. And I'll just he just went off, but he said we need to create a day, a global accessibility awareness day, and he kind of left it open as to like this is something that needs to happen. And so, as I said to you, like I had been doing my own thing, and so I was like, wow, this is amazing. So here I was. So I responded to his blog, and if you go to the website globalaccessibilityawarenessday.org. And I believe if you click on the about link, you actually can see the blog. There's a link to the blog post there. And I was the first person who responded to him. And I said, hey, you know, if you're really serious about this, let's chat. Now, the funny backstory is you couldn't have met two busier people than Joe and me. And I'm not saying busy to sound self-important. We're just, we overcommit ourselves. So even just to get us on the phone was a bit of a thing, but we got on, we finally got, we, we chatted and we said, let's, let's do this. And originally we just picked a random date. I think the first time we did it was May 11th or May 12th. So he used his network of people that he knew to let people know. I made a few, like sent some emails out just telling some of my friends in different places. So this is what we're thinking of doing. We want us to do this day dedicated to accessibility. Would you be willing to run an event? And from that first time we did it, First of all, I can't believe we're celebrating now our 10th anniversary, but the way people embraced it and it's got a mind of its own now. At this point, Joe and I are kind of, we're the stewards of it, right? We just, we've created the platform and what we just want people to do is to spend that day, whether it's on their own or at their company doing a little event or running a meetup or something, writing a blog, anything like that. Just talk about accessibility, take a buddy out for coffee or a friend out for coffee, grab a cocktail and just say, hey, what are you working on these days? Have you thought about accessibility? Or just like run something big. In our first year, we had like a friend of mine in India. She ran this government conference in Delhi on accessibility. And at this point, what's interesting about the day itself, and we've normalized it to the third Thursday of May, because we realized when we first chose a date, it banged into some European holidays. So we couldn't have that happen. So we just said, you know what, to make it easier for people, let's just always say it's going to be the third Thursday of May. So it happens to be on May 20th this year. But what I want to say is what's been exciting about it is some companies have used it to like launch big product announcements or to run like campaigns or things that involve digital access or inclusion, that kind of thing. And we're multilingual. We find out about events happening in different languages. I'm right now in the process of getting some of our collateral uh, translated into a couple more languages because obviously there's over 1 billion people with disabilities or impairments out there 15 percent of the world's population and that's a conservative number 
and they don't all speak English. <laughs> so we want to make sure that Global Accessibility Awareness Day is global. I'm going to stop there. See if you have questions, because I could just keep going on and on. <laughs> no, I totally, I totally get it. And I want you to be able to go on and on, but I will ask you the questions that will enable you too. <laughs> so there were a couple of phrases that stood out in your answer that I really enjoyed. One, having read quite a few tech blogs over the years, quote, if they get a bee in their bonnet, they're going to rant about <laughs> it on their blog, is one of the truest statements because, I mean, the bee that's in the bonnet can be, <laughs> oh, yeah. it can be either the tiniest little thing that then becomes like a firestorm of controversy. Oh, yeah. But what's great is that like that tendency, right, in the tech community for people to get that bee in their bonnet, so to speak, and then just write about it, that tendency can be utilized towards good ends, right? Oh, absolutely. The bonnet's bee, so to speak, <laughs> doesn't always have to be something that is like, oh, I wish they'd said this in the keynote, or why isn't the Apple Watch have the blah, 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 blah. You can take that anger, or so to speak, or that frustration, and you can utilize it and direct it at something that can really benefit a lot of people. And the other thing that stood out was, and it's such a kind of a beautiful phrase, the idea of making accessibility more accessible is really just stuck with me. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you specifically, and we touched a little bit on this before I hit record, was I think that it's really important for, and I hope this comes across the way that I intend it, for benign ignorance to become more acceptable. And what I mean by that is for people from different communities to be able to understand one another. And in order for communities that are championing more accessibility, more inclusion, et cetera, for them to be heard, I think it's so important for us to be able to create and have conversations in which people coming from a good place might say the wrong phrase or not know everything from the get-go. And again, we talked about this early on when I was doing research for my conversation with you today, initially, as I was doing that research, and this is kind of just a confession, I started getting a little nervous, right? I was like, oh my gosh, I want to make sure I get you know the phrases right and, then, and the wording right because I want it to come from a good place. But I think that the problem there is that if one spends too much time worrying about all the little tiny details, the larger project of inclusion and the larger project of accessibility can be lost. Absolutely. Uh, you hit the nail there. If, if, I, if I could just jump in and say... Please do. I forget when I tweeted it, but one of the things I've said, and it's, it's something I've always known, is that your average Joe or Joanne or Jonathan in your day-to-day life will not encounter someone outwardly who you know has a disability or impairment, like a visible, right? Invisible, like we know, those of us who work in accessibility know that there's so many more people with invisible disabilities than, than visible ones. Those of us who have visible disabilities just tend to be a little bit more outspoken. So there's part of it is people are not necessarily comfortable because they don't want to say the wrong thing and all that kind of stuff. There's different narratives about disability out there too. There's the like, poor Joe, poor Joanne, like poor them that they have a disability, blah, blah, blah. But then on the other hand, there's like this other total verse, like, look at that, like, Joe or Joanne with a disability who just like scaled Mount Everest and they only have one arm. So you've got the like the superhero narrative of people with disabilities. Yeah, it's dehumanizing either way. Yeah. And then you've got the other side. But then there's everyone in between. Those of us who just want to like live and use the same technology that you're using and talking about. Right. And all that kind of stuff. So I say that to just agree with you. And one of the things I inherently do, whether it's the accessibility camps, which I now run in the Bay Area, quick uh, promo that we're running ours on the 22nd of May to help 
continue the celebration of Global Accessibility Awareness Day. So that's called Accessibility Camp Bay Area. You can use your favorite search engine to look that one up. But it's the same thing. I want to create an informal, comfortable space for people, whether they're hosting a talk or whether they're interacting and being a participant, where they feel comfortable saying, like, how does a blind person do that with their technology? Because that's so important to me. Without that, it's like anything else, right? If you're not going to be comfortable with it, then you're not going to want to do anything. Yes, absolutely. I want to get to that question, that exact question you just asked in terms of how a person who is blind, such as yep. yourself, we should yes. we should disclose to the audience. Should we give the uh, the bare truth? I'm completely blind. I've actually, I've been blind since birth, which is important to say up front because obviously my experience as someone who's been completely blind, like 18 months in that I lost my vision, but I don't remember any of it, but it, it's a different reality than someone you would speak to who may have lost their vision when they were 10. Do you know what I mean? Or someone who is visually impaired. So I, that's the only reason why I mentioned that. Yeah, I've been completely blind almost since birth. Yeah, no, it's important to thinly slice those things because yeah. people with different levels of sight yeah. require different yeah. accessibility options. You kind of beat me to the punch with um, <laughs> access. access- <laughs> <laughs> you and your good answers. You just got ahead of me. I wanted to talk about the Accessibility Camp Bay Area and the Bay Area Accessibility and Inclusive Design meetup groups that you founded. So before we get into the meat of how our internet is made accessible for all, I just want to touch on those two organizations. They were both founded in 2014. So we can start with Accessibility Camp Area, which I think, as you noted, is a free participant-driven event that brings together Silicon Valley tech professionals and users with disabilities. And the topics that are covered at the event can include techniques for developing accessible mobile platforms, accessibility in gaming, inclusive design, just to name a few. Everything, yeah. But I want to hone in on what feels like the most important aspect, at least to me as an outsider, bringing together the users and creators. Because as someone from a creative background, I know that one of the most key elements to creating better products, no matter the context, is to bring the user and the creator together to dialogue. So absolutely, absolutely. I want to understand how something like the accessibility camp that brings those two parties together and events like it can form a closer bond and improve accessibility between those two groups, users and creators. I'm saying this half jokingly, but half not. The most popular piece of accessibility camp is honestly the after networking event. Pre-COVID, we would hold this at the LinkedIn San Francisco office. And the energy in there is just amazing, just bringing everyone together. But when you get everyone, everyone's had a full day of learning about accessibility, most of those people for the first time, and they're meeting new people with disabilities too, like developers and engineers, and they're offering to give assistance to grab lunch and like to find a seat in the different rooms. Then you pull that back and you go to a bar next door and network. That's where the magic is happening. And over lunch as well, of course. But it's those informal networking opportunities. Like I just walk around both the after party and the lunch and I just take it in and I'm like, listen to all this conversation that's happening. It's also obviously happening in the rooms, but it's just that informal thing and people feel comfortable to do that. And I make it clear at the very beginning, like everyone's going to help each other out. So if you see someone who's blind, who's about to walk into something, don't feel bad, like walk over if you want. Because I know people get horrified just at the thought of watching two blind people collide into each other. I'll say that we're used to it (laughs) as blind people, but I know for a seeing person that it can be very jarring just to see like the near miss or someone who's about to knock something over. Right. Just that whole synergy of bringing those two groups together is what makes the camp and by extension, the meetup as well. That's the impact. And that's what I'm trying to do is just to build that conversation. I connect with that on a very 
deep level because having worked in film and marketing and having attended many after work cocktail parties and, and meetups and hangouts and yada, yada, yada. What I love about those moments, right, that are away from the conferences, that are away from the formal lectures and presentations, which of course are important in learning the nuts and bolts of a thing. Why I find those cocktail events, so to speak, or the after conference drinks, the most important piece is because it takes a user, it takes an audience member from an abstract to an individual. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say I'm a developer, right? Or let's say I'm making something, right? It goes from, well, how can I picture this person or this group that I haven't had direct contact with and anticipate what their needs might be to, man, how can I make this website a little easier for Jenison? Right. I would then now think of you. I would think of the laughs that we had over cocktails. I would think of the anecdotes you told me from your time growing up in Toronto. I would, you become a friend in my mind. Right. Who I then want to help. Right. Because we want to help the people who are our friends. Right. And and the other thing is to add on to what you're saying, like I, I truly, truly get what you're saying because the most impactful times that I have had in my years working in accessibility are those times where I'm sitting with a designer or an engineer or an executive, like a leader, and just showing them, because the, the guidelines are voluminous. The web content accessibility guidelines are huge and they're daunting and there's over 50 some odd. And if you just look at them in the abstract, you're like, oh my God, how am I going to like, how am I going to meet all of these things? Yeah, I kind of, <laughs> I glanced at WCAG and I, I was like yeah. a little overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, truth be told, there's like, 1520 that are the most critical. I say that knowing that I'm probably going to get slapped on the wrist by just saying that. But the reality is not every single guideline applies to every single situation. But let me step back to what I was saying before. But the times I love and really like know that I'm doing some important stuff is when I'm sitting, like I said, with that engineer or that designer and just showing them what the issues are whether I'm doing it or whether we're observing it through someone else with a different disability or impairment. I'm always conscious that when someone is watching me, so if you and I were sitting together and looking at a website, there's two personas there. There's Jenison, who's been using technology forever. But then there's the average user, again, your average Jonathan or Helen, who are just using the web. Like They're not using it every single day of the week. Maybe they just hop on to communicate with their kids, or they just need to log on to do their banking. Like technology isn't their center of life, right? They just want to go on and buy groceries, like in the time of, of COVID, right? Or use an app and order food. That's all they're doing it for. And then they're just going on with the rest of their lives. So it's that persona. So what I, I'm always careful to do when I'm doing one of those walkthroughs is, so this is how Jenison would experience this screen. I wouldn't know that this is potentially a button because it's not saying it's a button. It's just saying it's a string of text. Do you know what I mean? So there's, I always am very careful myself anyway, when I'm doing those walkthroughs, just to make sure people understand that. And like any, anyone else, right? There's highly technical people who happen to have disabilities and who benefit from accessibility. But the majority of people are the average Joe or Joanne who just want to get on the computer to accomplish a task, whether it's a work task or whether it's a personal task or hobby, but they don't have a computer strapped to their back as I might, if that makes sense. No, absolutely it does. I have, in my own small way, just as like a tech enthusiast, I have a similar experience whenever I talk about technology with my parents, right? Because yeah. I'll, I'll watch the newest Apple keynote, I'll get really excited for the new version of AirPods or whatever that are coming out. And what I have had to learn over the last decade, right, mm -hmm. is 
I have to speak to my parents, uh, and I'm just using them as an example, yeah. with a kind of modified language so that I can get them as enthused about a new product as I am, but I have to meet them where they are rather than try and convince them to be as excited about it as I am for the tech specs that they don't care about. I have to take like all that mumbo jumbo that I've heard about the, this is this fast and this is this new version of this and be like, okay, wait, how would my mom or my dad, how would they use this product and how can I speak to them about it in a way that makes them excited? Yeah. They only care about the end result of that product, not about all the stuff that went into making it. Absolutely. The only other thing I'll add, and we, we can dive into it or just leave it at, at what I'm going to say, is that the added complexity for users with certain disabilities or impairments is that they're using another user agent to interact with a screen, whether it's a mobile screen or whether it's a desktop screen, like a PC or, or a Mac. And what I mean by that is things like screen reading software or screen magnification software or voice recognition software, which in themselves, if you're not a techie person, you first of all have to learn how to use that piece of software and make sure you know how to use it to its fullest extent. So knowing all the commands, whether it's keystrokes or whether it's voice commands, understanding all of those and how they interplay with your browser. Because one of the challenges, particularly for screen reader users, is that depending on which browser you're using and which screen reader you're using, you could have a totally different experience. It's like almost driving stick versus automatic. It can be that different. And then you layer on the actual website itself. Yes. So you've got like these multiple pieces, right? Yes. You've got the underlying HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Then you've got how that interplays with the browser and how that plays with the assistive technology or the adaptive hardware software. That is what makes an accessibility professional different from, say, a usability person. And because we often hear in the space, well, usability and accessibility are the same. I would press back and say they are to a point, but where an accessibility person becomes an accessibility person is that they understand that interplay, that ballet that happens between the assistive technologies, understanding the guidelines and standards, and the impact of if you decide not to meet a particular guideline or standard, how that impacts users with a variety of different disabilities. Because if you come to me and go, hey, Jenison, was that website accessible? I will come back to you and say, well, are you asking me accessible to me? Or are you saying accessible in general or to which disability or impairment? So there's all kinds of nuances and things, which makes accessibility sometimes frustrating for the average designer or engineer who may frankly be getting their directives from their project manager or their leaders going, just like make it quote unquote compliant, make it accessible. But they're trying to understand a little bit more. And some of the stuff isn't black and white. There's different things that could be accessible in one case. Like you could be missing alternative text on, on an image in one circumstance where eh, like it's bad that it's missing, but it's not going to stop someone from completing a transaction. Whereas if that image is for a button and there's no alternative text on it, then that could be the difference between actually completing the transaction because I'm not going to activate a button which all it says is button or graphic button. Right. So anyway, <laughs> I moved us. No, it's okay. <laughs> this will actually transition us perfectly into the next topic. And I do want to just as a quick button here, like speaking from my entry point, compliance will never lead to true disruption. Right. Apple could have only innovated in the desktop and laptop and specifically smartphone areas back in the day because they went beyond compliance. As in, 
you have to go, if you're going to truly make an innovative product yep. that can reach the masses, so to speak, yep. right, of whatever community we're talking about, you have to go beyond what is compliant to begin thinking about a topic in a way that is like, okay, compliance doesn't always necessarily mean that this is going to be the product that's most easy for the average person. You, quote, oh, quote, you use. got it right on. Yeah, right on the nail. It's the concept of sure, it can be accessible and you can check off all the boxes. Yes. But it, is it usable? Yes. Can I just sneak one more quick thought in? <laughs> sure. Yeah. You can smuggle as many thoughts in as you want. <laughs> so when we have this conversation about accessibility, one of the things that often comes up when I'm talking to product folks or to designers who might not have been exposed to accessibility before, and I don't blame them for it because I, I would think the same way of why should we be developing or spending time developing for like the small niche market of people? What's important to understand is that a couple of things. One is there's over a billion people with disabilities or impairments out there. And that, again, like I said, that's a conservative number. But beyond that, beyond the people who are considered having quote unquote disabilities or impairments from the whatever, however you want to define it, there's everyone else. There's everyone else who benefits from making stuff accessible. There's people like Temporary disabilities, I always hear this, I, I broke my arm and now I know like what it's like. Well, you might not know exactly what it's like, but you maybe have switched <laughs> over to using like screen recognition software because you can't use the hand that you usually use to operate the mouse. Uh, captioning, I think is probably the, one of the better ones because I can't think of anyone who can see who hasn't benefited from captioning who isn't deaf, hard of hearing or hearing impaired. Right, for any number of reasons, to read captions because either they're in a loud place or they just prefer to read, or some people actually like to read and listen at the same time. And so that's a big one. But from a purely accessibility perspective, when you think of the guidelines, the number one guideline, at least to me, if you're not meeting this, you might as well forget about everything else, is keyboard operability and navigability. So if you cannot operate your UI, whether it's mobile or desktop, PC or Mac, if you can't operate, interact with that UI using the keyboard alone, everything else falls apart. Again, it's, part of it is for people with disabilities because there's some people who can't use a mouse and there's some people, well, yada, yada, yada. But there's a whole group of people out there who work in jobs from a productivity perspective. They prefer to keep their hand on the keyboard. They don't want to lift it up and move it over to the mouse. So by making your UIs keyboard operable and navigable, Absolutely, you are helping people with disabilities and impairments, no doubt. But there is that other group of people who just find using a keyboard that much more productive that you're also helping. So whenever we have that conversation about, like, why should we be doing this for like a small group, you have to broaden that conversation. And the idea is you solve for one and it extends to many. Yes. And sometimes you just don't know it until you actually launch it and you find out, hey, the fact that you can actually use dynamic type on an iPhone app. I'm getting older and my sight is like, uh, I don't consider myself visually impaired, but that, that's really cool that I can enlarge the fonts and I can actually read the stuff on my phone. Because those conversations, as far as we may have come in accessibility, there's still so many people because accessibility isn't widely taught. Most people I meet at LinkedIn or other places where I speak, accessibility for a lot of them it's the first time they're actually learning about it. And nine times out of 10, they get into it because for an engineer, a lot of them view shipping code that's accessible. And one of the conversations I have with engineers and to help them understand why they should be making their stuff accessible is because it's part of good craftsmanship. Forget about doing good for people with disabilities. That's all, yes, that's all there. 
But when you ship code knowingly that's not accessible, you're essentially introducing tech debt and bugs into whatever you're building that are going to need to be resolved potentially later on. So if you care about your craft, whether you're an engineer or a designer, why wouldn't you want to be a good craftsperson and follow the guidelines and, and just do right by your discipline? Yeah. Tech debt. That is a great phrase. I really like it. I mostly speak in analogies and metaphors. Yeah, yeah. I'm like 90% analogy. But the way that I can connect with what you're saying is, having gone to film school, watched a ton of foreign language films, right? Mm -hmm. I have been in rooms with people who will speak the native language of whatever foreign film I'm watching, right? And we'll be watching the film and it has English subtitles. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm watching, you know, I'm, I don't speak the language that's in the film. So I'm just going along. I'm enjoying the subtitles. I think that I'm getting the full experience. And I have been in situations where I'll be sitting next to someone who speaks the language. I'll see them getting frustrated and I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, I know that you're not experiencing this film the way that you should be experiencing it because these subtitles are trash. So for me, I couldn't have known what I was missing out on, the language differences, the, the subtleties of the slang of the local culture that I'm missing out on because of the bad translation, unless I had that person sitting next to me informing me yeah. of how I was missing out on it. So I think the way that you talk about accessibility, even in the 30 minutes we've already been talking, I think is really key and probably explains why you're an evangelist. Because when we talk about these things, a lot of the touchstones of accessibility are universal ideas that can apply to everybody. Absolutely. And I mean, you and I are talking about digital accessibility, but often when you hear about people talking about accessibility in general, and everyone thinks about physical and things like curb cuts and all of those things in the physical and the built environment, but there's certainly touchstones in the digital space that everyone can relate to, right? Keyboard and captioning and yes. ability to enlarge fonts, all those kinds of things. Not to cut you off, we've been dancing around this and I want to get into it, which is... okay. I want to make it concrete. I want the... You want to hear the stories. Yes, exactly. I want people who are listening who are sighted yeah. or who don't have any kind of... Disability or impairment. Yeah, disability or an impairment when it comes to their visual. <laughs> Say, I'm already, I'm already struggling hey, here. No, please. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you, kinda, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Because when I... To use an analogy, when I first started film school, and I imagine this applies to kind of any area of knowledge, as I was introduced to new concept after new concept, like, oh, lens choices and color choice and production design and costume design, the first few months that I was in school, and the more that I learned, like I was just drinking in like so much information... That first few months was actually terrifying because the more that I learned, the less I realized I knew. Yep. And it was a world that just felt more foreign to me the more that I learned until I reached like a certain threshold. Yep. And then I started becoming comfortable with it. And so as I prepared for our talk today and I began researching the topic of internet accessibility, the more I realized I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm becoming overwhelmed. Like at a certain point, I actually had to start scaling down and making my questions like just smaller and smaller because I realized... I'm just out of my depth. So I think for the people listening, what I would love is for you to simply share the nuts and bolts of what it's like using the internet as a person who is blind, yeah. because for people who may not have disabilities or your specific one, yeah. to truly understand the importance of accessibility innovations, I think we have to meet you where you are, right. not where we are. And so what I'd love to know is as a run of the mill example. What is it like, just to ground it in something that everyone does all the time, what is it like making an online purchase? Like, let's say you want to buy a couch or a lamp. Right. You just sat down at your computer yeah. and you want to purchase a lamp. What does that look like? Sure. So 
what I would do is I would go to website fill in the blank. And if I'm looking for a lamp, I would probably look for a search box. And hopefully that search box is built to be accessible because when you start typing things into a search box. Really quickly, Jenison, are you using any kind of additional assistive technology here? You mentioned a screen reader earlier, so I just want to make sure that we're not skipping over anything. So yeah, so I'm using my screen reader. So I've got my earpiece in and I've got my screen reader going. I'm a Chrome user. I'm a Windows guy. So I'll launch my Chrome browser, launch my retail website of choice. Just to pester you. Yeah, yeah, please. What is a screen reader? At its base level, it is software that runs in the background that essentially reads back to me what is displaying on the screen. And it can go from the high level, It can when a page launches, it can start from the very beginning of the page and read completely to the very end of the page. And it reads everything, both things that you could focus with a mouse, so buttons and links and all those things, but also the text. Now, usually most websites have tons of things on the screen, whether it's like interactive elements or on-screen text that listening to a screen from top to bottom, to me, like I have the attention span of like a gnat. So I can't take all that stuff in. So what I will typically do is as soon as a page loads, I will use commands within the screen reader. So I use something called JAWS, J-A-W-S is my screen reader. And it's got all these commands where I could browse the page line by line using my up and down arrow keys. I could pull up a list of links. I could pull up a list of buttons. I could just like start moving around and hitting my tab key to move around from one focusable element to another. When you say, I hope you don't mind, I, no, please. I'm only cutting in because I, whenever I hear you say a phrase that automatically I start getting lost, I imagine other people might as well. And so I just, because this is new to me, I want to ask clarifying questions. Yeah. When you say pull up a list of buttons... Does that mean that it basically scans for every button on the website and then creates it to you in a list so, so you can then just read the list of buttons rather than have to scan the whole page? Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly what you said. So it pulls up a list and then I can use my up and down arrow keys That's really cool. to go through it. I, I bet you those are things that people who could see would probably find beneficial. Yeah. You're, yeah you're, <laughs> you're mentioning some stuff that I would find personally pretty convenient. Now, so long as the buttons are all labeled properly, then it's perfect, right? But sometimes I will hear like just button, button, button without knowing what the button is. I'll have to like go and investigate what that button might be. Or it says graphic button or number four button. Or there might be buttons that are buttons in the code, but it hadn't been built to be accessible. And my screen reader isn't recognizing it as a button. Again, I don't want to get too into the weeds with that stuff, but that can sometimes happen. So back to what we were talking about. So here I am on this retail website page. So I'm looking for a lamp. One of the first things I might do is just use the find command on the web page to just look for the word lamp. Because maybe if it's a retail page, my expectation is there's probably like department set up or categories, and maybe there's a lamp category. So that's the first thing I would do is type the word lamp. If that's not there, then I will start investigating the page itself to see like how is the page set up? Are there like different departments? Is there that search box? And like I said, hopefully that search has been made accessible. And what I mean by that is sometimes you have what's called a type ahead, where as you start typing letters into the search box, there are options that pop up below. Right, the autocomplete or autofill. Yes, autocompletes. Now, if in the underlying code, it hasn't been made to be accessible, and again, I'm not gonna, I won't get to the weeds with it, but essentially, if it hasn't communicated to my screen reader, hey, I am displaying options below, 
make sure to speak those options or let Jenison know that those options have appeared so that he can start using his up and down arrow keys to go through it. Okay. Just so I'm keeping up to speed here, let's say we're talking about Amazon and yep. you've just typed in lamp. Yep. If the code is written in a way that makes it accessible to someone who is blind, yep. what would happen when you type in lamp is your screen reader would read out to you that there has been a autocomplete list that is populated beneath the search bar. And if it wasn't coded properly, you would not even know even that know that autocomplete yeah. list is yeah, there. Absolutely. Yeah. These are the small things that rather large yeah. things, I suppose, that I would just personally take for granted because I can see it. You see it. Yeah. And similar things happen. Like, for example, one of my biggest pet peeves is when error messages display. So let's fast forward to, to oh, yeah, my pur- yeah. the purchase flow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So here I am on the purchase flow. And typically there's like, are you going to use a credit card or whatever? I remember there was this site that I used where I typed in the credit card number. And for whatever reason, I left a digit out. Mm. And in order to signal that there was an error, they changed the color of that field. So here I am getting ready to purchase something. I think I have everything right. I got the shipping address. Everything, blah, 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 blah. I hit submit. And then I go back up with my up arrow keys. And I noticed that I'm still on the purchase screen. And I don't know what, like, what's happened. So I'm like, okay, so let me look around. Are there error messages on the screen? So I don't find any error message. I hit submit again going like, what's going on? To learn later, because I asked a seeing uh, friend, like, what, what's happening here? And they're like, oh, well, your credit card field turned red. Of course, I wouldn't have known that. Right. A follow-up question that I have is, yeah. uh, hopefully I'm wording this correctly. When your screen reader is reading the screen, is it not only reading what a sighted person would see, but also code that could be written so that it would be invisible yes. to the, to a sighted person yes. it but, could be reading off screen text yeah right so it would see like code that was specifically written for someone with a visual disability and the screen reader would pick that up and read it to you but if i was using amazon let's say i wouldn't even see it you wouldn't even be the wiser yeah interesting and so could there be an element in which that problem you encountered with the red mm-hmm, box right mm-hmm. Could they have made the exact same design where if I'd seen it, it would just been a red box. But for your screen reader, they could have written in such a way where I see the red box, you would... Hear like error. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This box has an error, please, blah, 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 blah. No, absolutely. And I mean, truth be told, that particular example that I told you about where the thing turned red, remember we talked about the web content accessibility guidelines. There's an explicit guideline that says something to the effect of, If you're going to use a visual cue to convey meaning, you have to also include a non-visual equivalent. So whether that's text, whether that's something else, there has to be another means of conveying, of perceiving that error. Gotcha. That answers a follow-up question I had, which was, what do you do with graphic icons? But it sounds like if it's a graphic icon that looks like a little stop sign that I, I know what I'm doing when I click it, it sounds like the screen reader, if it was written with the WCAG guidelines, it would read out stop sign yep. or something like or that. Something to, yeah, absolutely. You got it right there. One question that I often get are like my biggest pet peeves when it comes to using technology, whether I'm shopping for a lamp or anything else. One of my biggest pet peeves And again, tell me if I'm getting too technical here, but people who are building websites have decisions that they can make when they're coding. They could use standard, what are called HTML elements. And those are standard, like a standard button or a standard link or a standard checkbox. A lot of those standard native controls 
have accessibility actually built into them, right, already. So if you use these native, a native button or native link, there's not much you need to do to make that accessible. Uh-huh. You know, you have to put the name and things like that. What's happening these days is that a lot of developers are using some of the more fancy JavaScript libraries where they have like this fancy looking button. And unfortunately, not every single JavaScript library, so these are the non-standard controls, has been treated for accessibility. And so what you end up having is people will use these controls and then that's where the problems end up happening. Right. And so I've experienced things like there's a large hotel chain, which I will remain nameless, but I strictly, I cannot book a hotel with them, even if I wanted to, because they are using a non-standard checkbox where you're on the last step. Now, the whole process is kind of like janky from an accessibility perspective. Your average George Joanne would have a lot of trouble booking a hotel with this chain, but I've been able to get to the point where I've entered everything. But there's this checkbox that says that you agree with all of the hotel policies, yada, yada, yada. And you need to check that box in order to complete the reservation. Even with all of the acrobatics that I have tried, every trick that I know to deal with non-standard things doesn't work. So that hotel chain does not get my money. Well, you know, Jenison, you're touching on something that is really important, which is obviously we talk about allergies all the time. I I had asthma growing up as a kid, but it sounds like one of the things that we're touching on right now that really doesn't get touched on enough is people and companies that are allergic to money. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Because, Because to me, this is just stupid. Why is because every time you make something harder for someone, whether they have disabilities or not, because I have gone through MC Escher labyrinthian checkboxes and weird janky designs that frustrate me. I've literally walked away from some websites because I'm like, why are you making it so hard for me to give you money? It just seems like from a purely capitalistic, selfish standpoint, it is in your best interest as a developer and as a company to make your website as easy as possible for people to pay you. Yes, absolutely. And not to overstate the point, but like, so I realize I'm an outlier when it comes to, like, if you look at the unemployment rate amongst people, particularly who are blind, it's fairly high. It's depressing. It's like 70%. I'm in that 30% who, thankfully, knock on wood here. <laughs> I work and so I have disposable income that I'm wanting to spend. And so I'm like anyone else. I'm wanting to stay at hotels. I want to buy plane tickets. I want to purchase stuff online. And so if you are going to make that experience not accessible, I will just go elsewhere and bring my loyalty to a different place. And I will tell you that I often tell my friends, you know, hey, word travels. Yeah. Like whether they have a disability or not, I had a bad experience with this thing. The other thing that cracks me up are restaurant websites that put their menu is a scanned image. <laughs> as a PDF. You know, a PDF or a scanned image, right? So it's a JPEG. Yeah. And unfortunately, screen reading software has not gotten to the point where it will be able to scan an image like that and do it properly. So again, I'm looking for a restaurant to go visit. If I can't read your menu and I can't get it to know like what it's going to be, I'm, I'm not going to chance it. I'm like everyone else. I want to know ahead of time. I don't want to be surprised. But to say all that, most of the websites or the companies that I've gotten in touch with to tell them that there's an issue, there are some people who will out companies over social media and do all that kind of stuff. That's just not in my nature. 
but I will look them up and I will get in contact with someone and just let them know what the problem is. Eight times out of 10, people will come back to me and they'll be all apologetic. They'll want to find out more. And again, a lot of it is they just didn't expect. And that's part of the whole thing. You and I talked about this before, about people not being comfortable about disabilities. The other thing is people just do not expect someone with a disability or impairment to be using the product that they built. You've probably heard this funny joke where people these days who are building products are building it for themselves, right? They're not thinking about everyone else. Yes. So again, who would think of a person with a disability, right? This reminds me of, I don't know how specific I should get here, but there was a tech keynote. You might actually know the one I'm talking about, but there was a tech keynote a few years ago where there was a video chat app that a company was announcing at its developers conference, let's say, and they were comparing it to FaceTime. And they were saying, unlike FaceTime, where you have to click connect to see the video of the person you're talking to, our app will show you video of the person before you even click accept, right? And they were bragging like, this is an amazing achievement, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't think anything of it, right? I was like, okay, that's cool. I guess, I don't know. I guess it's cool that you can see video of the person before you accept the call. And I go onto Twitter and there's all these women developers who are like, did they have a single woman on their design team? Mm. It took me a second. I was like, why would that? Yeah. Oh, I was like, I can understand why a woman would not necessarily want to see video of someone without first consenting to it. And the thing is, is like, if you're not aware of all the different ways that an app or a website or anything can be used, you don't have to be coming from a malicious place, which I imagine is your interactions with these companies, right? Like, they were just ignorant of it. You got it right on. Speaking of Twitter, by the way, That is a huge meeting place for accessibility and conversations uh, around that, which I think that's part of the way you found me. But just so people know, if you are curious about accessibility on Twitter, there's a hashtag called A11Y. It's not pronounced ally or alley, as some people think. Those are ones. It's because there's 11 characters between A and Y. And so if people just want to even get a glimpse into some of the conversations that happen in accessibility, following the A11Y hashtag on Twitter is a great way to just be a bystander and just see like what are the pain points people are having. And sometimes you'll see some controversial things. And sometimes people will be calling out companies because they didn't put their best foot forward when it comes to accessibility. But for your listeners who might be interested in just getting a feel for that conversation, the A11Y hashtag is one good place to start. So going back to web design, yeah, just ballparking. What percentage of major websites, right? The ones that most people interact with on a day-to-day basis, the big names are truly accessible to people with all various kinds of disabilities. And in your case, specifically people with visual disabilities are all the major websites. Like if I were to pull up a list of the top 25, are they all pretty much gold standard? What is the percentage of major websites that really hit that mark? Are you ready for this, for this revelation? So there's an organization called WebAIM, W-E-B-A-I-M, one word that put out a study this year looking at the top million websites. It's one of the big companies that does these, that has a catalog of top million websites. And if I am saying this correctly, 98% of all the websites, at least the homepages of the websites, had at least one accessibility issue. 98%? Yeah. So I'm backing into answering your question by telling you that data. Yeah, yeah. And that isn't even even talking about mobile apps. This is just websites. Right. There's reasons why. There's definitely, absolutely reasons why. 
the number one reason why web accessibility is that bad is because the balance of websites out there are built by, again, your average Joe or Joanne who probably know nothing about web development or web design. They've hired a company. They haven't asked for accessibility requirements. So that web design company is just going to go to town and create the most zingy looking, cool looking website without thinking about accessibility because it wasn't brought up. Or they're using one of these website builder in a box software where they're dragging around the buttons and all these things onto the screens and they're pushing a button that says create website. That is my theory about the web and why things are, are so bad. Because the companies who are accessibility-minded, and when I say that, what I mean is that they've invested in people, tooling, whatever, to make their stuff accessible, in quotes. That's a small number of websites when you think about the grand scheme of things, right? So that's why it's depressing. But I think if we're really going to make a difference, we need to work with some of those website builder-in-a-box companies to make sure that they are creating widgets that are accessible. And some are doing it. I mean, I will give props to companies like Wix and WordPress and Drupal who have made investments in making their stuff accessible. Now, at the end of the day, it's up to the person who wants that website. They could choose the accessible themes or the accessible controls and all those things, but that's a decision they need to make. They could say, no, I'd rather just use these because maybe they're prettier. Well. I guess my follow-up question to that was, I'm actually kind of surprised that these, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Build-A-Bear websites don't have accessibility baked in because what you were saying earlier was, you know, a lot of the things like standard buttons, standard icons, that stuff's already baked in, the accessibility, and that it was oftentimes when designers wanted to use more bespoke, specialized, custom-made buttons was when they started running into the problems with accessibility. But it sounds to me actually, depressingly, it's a problem on both ends. It's a problem with the folks who want to go, quote unquote, above and beyond when it comes to design, and then they leave accessibility on the wayside. But it's also a problem with the, I guess, the IKEA of web design apps yeah. too. Yeah, the content development tools. Yeah. yeah, it's and I'm actually really surprised at that second part, because I would think that because they're so standardized, it would be easy to make them compliant, but it sounds like that's not the case. And I know nothing about the insides, like the inners of these tools. But they also could be taking standard controls and kind of like putting their own stamp on them, if you will. They might be custom buttons and custom checkboxes, even within those a web in a box type of things. And you can imagine the same thing would hold true with mobile apps, because there are app builders that you could do the same thing where you don't have to know much about how to develop a mobile app, but you can just drag stuff around and then, you know, and I'm oversimplifying this, but then like hit a button that says build my app right? Because everyone wants a storefront. Now, thankfully, some of the big companies, like I said, like the Wix and WordPress, they do have accessible stuff. And so, so long as the small or medium-sized business cares about that market or, or they're building their blog or whatever they're doing, and they want to reach everyone, then hopefully they'll think about using accessible themes or at least ask the question. But that's, again, that's a big part of it too, because we know that engineers computer scientists and designers aren't learning about accessibility in colleges and universities. So your average Joe or Joanne who wants to open up their bakery website, you can only imagine that they're not going to think about accessibility either. Right, right. They're just wanting to get their business off the ground and they have enough stuff on their minds, right? Yeah. And then we have this whole issue about startups, right? 
who want to get their product out the door, their MVP. There is friction there between like, we're having enough trouble. We're looking for engineers, let alone an accessibility person to come in and help us. Right. We need to get this thing out the door. And because I've worked in the field as long as I have, I understand it. I don't necessarily agree with it. So I want to be very clear. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I get it. And so stuff will undoubtedly ship with accessibility bugs. Like you're not going to get every bug. Like you can use every piece of test automation tool, which only picks up 30 to 40% of accessibility bugs anyway. Unless you do like really full on accessibility testing, including or having people with different disabilities or impairments use their assistive technologies on the product, you're not going to get 100%. Nor should you ever shoot for 100%. I always, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. When I hear someone say, oh yeah, this thing is completely accessible or perfectly accessible. That to me, a part of my French, like it's, I won't even say that. <laughs> it's just, it's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. Yeah. Because in our world today of agile, where you are building something and shipping something today, and you're going to throw it away in weeks, if not months, Stuff is going to be broken. You're going to be like, you're going to always be iterating on it anyway. Now, the good thing about working in Agile is that. What is Agile just for the average person? So, Agile is this way of developing which is very fast paced. So, way back when I was started in accessibility and started working with engineering teams, we would be developing stuff and releasing it. Projects would come to me and they would be like, what are we now? We are April. They would be saying, yeah, we're going to be releasing this in a year. So there would be a lot of time to figure out all the nuts and bolts and accessibility and all that stuff because they had a year to plan it, to develop it, to test it, all that kind of stuff. That's kind of like waterfall approach to development. Agile is all about development is done in sprints, typically like a two-week sprint. And they are, forget the one year, their goal is to put something out into production within months. Right. I think Mark Zuckerberg once said, move fast and break things. Yes. Yes. And part of it is like, yeah, accessibility. Yeah, that's definitely a piece of it, right? You can break things by not having stuff accessible. Or the other thing is you could have something that might have been accessible in release two, but come release five, because you added something else to a screen, you broke all the accessibility from release two. That is a bit of an issue. Thankfully, Right. Tech debt. Yes. Yeah, you got it. You got it. (laughs) But part of what's nice these days is that there have been some really smart people who have been building some level of test automation to be at least be able to pick up some of the low hanging fruit. Like, for example, to be able to flag, hey, that button is missing a name, things like that. It's not going to pick up everything. Like it wouldn't pick up the fact that that credit card field turned red and that was the an inaccessible error message. But a test automation will pick up things like a missing alternative text description. It will pick up poor color contrast. It will pick up some of the low-hanging fruit. And hopefully that helps with our new agile way of thinking. We won't get into the weeds, but there's a whole methodology when you're thinking about agile, how to make stuff accessible. It's definitely not impossible. People can reach out to me if they're interested in that kind of stuff um, outside of the podcast. I'm going to talk about that because Agile is the way we're going now. Waterfall is definitely old school. And I don't know any digital product that's being developed in the old school way anymore. Everything is like, we need this yesterday. <laughs> oh, shoot. We got to make it accessible. <laughs> well, we don't have to get into the weeds, but let's do weed light. 
You talked about software that will test an app or a website for accessibility. But I guess my question is, I'll relate it to my own experience with web design, right? I knew uh, I, t- I taught myself HTML when I was uh, 12 or 13 to make a Star Wars fan website after I watched the original trilogy. But beyond that, I don't know much about design, right? So a website like Squarespace, which I use, or you could take Wix, for example, yeah. they, for someone like me, they make web design very easy. Yes. Basically, the what you see is what you get version of web design. So I guess my question is, since there's a billion people with various levels of disability in the world today, and it's an issue of leaving money on the table, just from a selfish standpoint, and also leaving people unable to access the internet in the full way that we all want them to. My question is, is there a Squarespace for Squarespace? And what I mean by that is, has anyone or is anyone working on not a testing thing that tests it afterwards, but an app that can be installed alongside or be compatible with, like, let's say someone is making a Squarespace website. Is there someone that's working on a solution where they can be like, you know what, we're just going to automatically make everything that you paste, copy and paste onto this website. We're automatically, as you build the website, going to make sure that everything you put in is accessible from the gate. Right. So short answer is I don't know, but I believe, I can't speak to Squarespace, but I believe Wix has some of that maybe built into it where if you put an image up, it might flag it to say like you should put an alternative text description in it, stuff like that. I think that's what you're talking about, right? Like kind of helpful cues to a person who might not even know anything about accessibility, but who might do something if they're cued, if they're given a cue to say, hey, this is missing a name or whatever, or the color contrast here is too light, you might want to bump it up. I think at least one of the Web in a box ones does it. I just don't know if Squarespace has it. Oh, that's fine. I was using Squarespace as it off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, absolutely. I believe, yes, I, I think at least one of those would be in their best interest to have that in place, right? To have that kind of helpful stuff. Because uh, to your other point, I don't think anyone knowingly and maliciously goes out there and says, I'm going to build this thing to exclude 15% of my potential audience right? Right. It's just silly to do so. (laughs) It just doesn't make sense. Now, on the other hand, what I will say is, if you are familiar with and aware of accessibility, and then at that point, you knowingly say, you make a decision to say, you know what, I'll deal with that after, like, I'm going to ship and then I'll deal with accessibility, like maybe in a few months when I have time. That's a totally different story, right? Because you are at that point, knowingly making that decision. Right. But I would say nine times out of 10, people are just, they don't know. They didn't know that People who have a different disability or impairment are going to want to use their site or whatever. So I always think the best. Uh, But there will be people out there. And in my 16 years of working in accessibility or 15 years, I've had to have difficult conversations over those years. And and it's just, it's like anything else. Part of it sometimes is discussing trade-offs and timelines and all that kind of stuff and seeing what makes sense. And so I always tell people accessibility, the technical pieces of accessibility are the easy parts. But if you're going to be really successful working in the field of accessibility, you need to have really good (laughs) negotiation skills, relationship skills, all of those. Because accessibility, when you first bring it up to people, you're basically introducing a fundamental change to how people do things, how they think about design, how they think about engineering, how they think about planning, all of those things as soon as you introduce accessibility for the first time. And I totally get it. It's only new thing. And As an accessibility person, I need to give that new team, I need to give them the benefit of the doubt and help them walk through without them going too crazy because I want them to do it. 
but I also don't want them to feel overwhelmed. So you got to just walk through and then people learn, like it becomes a muscle. And then the next project you do, you think about accessibility and then you start doing it. Yes. And I totally brought us up to a totally different topic. (laughs) No, not at all. The way that I relate to that is city design or city infrastructure, right? I ride my bike a lot. I love it. I've done it ever since college. And Los Angeles in general is not a very bike friendly city. And it's hard for me to appreciate how unbike friendly it is until I go to a city that was designed from the ground up with bikes in mind. When I hear you saying what you're saying about how some companies think about the accessibility portion as like a burden, it only feels that way because it's not normalized from the ground up. But once we reach a point where evangelists like yourself and people who are very invested and interested in making the internet accessible, it's going to feel just completely normal because it's going to be a step that you do whenever you design a website. It won't feel like an imposition coming in after the fact. It'll just be a step that you take in the same way that like, of course, when you're making cookies, you want to add eggs. Like no one thinks like, oh, I have to add eggs at the end. Like that's a, that's an imposition. (laughs) It's just part of the process. When we talk about this these days, those of us who work in accessibility are spending a lot of our time working with people either at our companies or at companies who are just starting their accessibility journey. And we always talk about accessibility as a journey. And the question always comes up, like, how do you get LinkedIn to embrace accessibility and things like that? And a lot of it is there's a top-down and a bottom-up approach to it. Top-down, absolutely. You need your leaders at the companies, whether it's a large company or a small company. You need to have leaders believe or buy into accessibility because you need them to set the tone, first of all, from the top. So people like Ryan Roslansky at LinkedIn, he will mention accessibility and he'll talk about it even amongst his direct reports. But then it goes beyond that. It's the managers who will talk to their engineers who are saying, like, you need to make sure you estimate and think about accessibility and all that kind of stuff. And then the bottoms up approach is we need to get our engineers and designers excited about accessibility and look at it as an interesting problem to solve. Because when you think about it, when you're a designer, you're designing for interesting problems. And when you're an engineer, you're also wanting to solve problems. And accessibility, if you frame it that way too, is like you're solving some interesting technical problems. Think about it. How did the people back in the day conceive of a completely blind person interacting with a phone that just had a screen on it? Yeah, that's been in the back of my mind during this conversation. Could you imagine? Like, Even when I started hearing about these things about phones where I wouldn't be doing anything but touching a screen, I was, I was a, a skeptic. You know, I was like, how am I going to even know what I'm doing? Like as a completely blind person, it's those kinds of things. So there's a top down and a bottoms up approach to doing accessibility. The other thing I'll say for anyone who's thinking about doing accessibility, either at their company or whatnot. And again, happy to talk to anyone, reach out to me outside the podcast, uh, because every situation is different. But one of the dangers that people do is they try to take on too much at once. So they're like, we're going to make all of our stuff accessible. If you have like so many different things, start small. Yeah. Start with eliminating JPEG menus right? Look at <laughs> for, your, for your takeout yeah. website. No, seriously. Look at the top two or three things that you know all of your customers or all of the visitors to your site are going to be interacting with. Start with that and get that as perfect as you can and then work on the rest of it. Yeah. Oftentimes, this thing where people feel like, again, you and I talked about this earlier, they need to make this quote-unquote perfectly, quote-unquote accessible site or something that's compliant, completely compliant or Section 508 complaint, whatever. And they burn the ocean because they're like, oh my God, there's like 150 screens. Right. They make the perfect the enemy of the good in a way that ultimately harms more than it helps because it's kind of like 
sometimes if I get a little lazy and I let my home get a little uh, messy, right? <laughs> I get a little overwhelmed because yeah. I think like, oh man, I got, I got to clean the living room and the kitchen yeah, yeah. and the bedroom and the bathroom yeah. and the dining room. And so I end up not cleaning anything for weeks, right? Where if I just thought, okay, you know what? All I'm going to do today, I'm going to forgive myself for everything else. All I'm going to do today is clean the kitchen. And what's so funny is one, either way, my kitchen's clean at the end. But two, just taking that initial step of cleaning my kitchen usually invigorates me to, to clean the yeah. bedroom. Yeah. yeah. There was something you said that really stuck out to me, which was, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was this idea of the tech industry really loving solving problems. And I think if there's any industry that has built a mythos around solving problems, it is the tech industry. I mean, yeah. I keep bringing it back to Apple because that's my, my own personal obsession. But there is this story of the original iPod where Steve Jobs gets like the first prototype of, of the iPod with the scroll wheel. And he just loses it because I think it took like five clicks to get from like the menu to a song. And he was like, it needs to be three clicks. And if you don't come back to me with three clicks, then we're not going to ship this product. And the engineers were like, we don't know how to do three clicks. I mean, it has to be more. We, we can't solve it, right? right? And eventually, of course, they did. But those kinds of problems and problem solving specifically, like almost reaches a legendary type status in the tech world, because I think, understandably, people take great pride oh, yeah. in being able to simplify things from a first principles perspective of mm -hmm. how do we solve as many problems as we can, so we can make this product as simple as possible for the end user. Yeah. And to me, when I hear you talk about accessibility, it is perfectly aligned, the kinds of problems you have to solve to make a website more accessible to someone with disabilities. It's perfectly aligned with the mythos of the tech industry from the ground up. Right. You got it spot on. And of course, I, the other piece, which you and I talked about earlier, which is as you're doing that, as you're solving for what you think might be this unique problem space, you're introducing stuff that is going to make it that much more usable for everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess my next question, and, and we touched on this a little bit is my entire apartment is decked out with Amazon Echoes, right? I had to be careful not to say her name. I didn't want to invoke her name just now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got my first as a Christmas gift. Oh, that's fantastic. And so, you know, I've got smart lights everywhere and I talk to it all the time and <laughs> I find it super useful, right? Yes. So I think you can probably anticipate where my question is going is I would love to understand for someone who is blind or folks with disabilities in general, yeah. I imagine that the smart speaker space must be a truly revolutionary oh kind of technology. And I would just love to understand and hear about how you interact with it, I guess, since Christmas, I suppose. No, absolutely. I swore to myself that I, I was like, oh, like, I'm not going to use it too much because I don't want to become lazy, but I have become, I'm totally sold on, on my Echo. I got a nice Echo studio so it has a good sound and everything. I'm a big jazz fan, so I love to hear the music. I use it mainly to play music or to stream radio. I don't have all these like routines and skills. Check in with me in about six months and I bet you I'll be like confessing that I've created all these skills. And stuff. <laughs> Your whole place will be the internet of things out. I know, right? But as of right now, no, the only thing I do is I ask it to play music. I had some fun having it translate some things into other languages for fun. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm asking Alexa to play this or that mainly or to tell me what time it is, or for timers, which frankly, I was doing some of that on my phone with Siri before, but it's just so much easier to just use one piece. But now for people with disabilities in the main, these voice assistants have been such an enabling thing when you think of people who might not have use of their hands or arms or legs. And before the, the Amazons came around, there were other voice recognition stuff. It wasn't as sexy looking as it is maybe today. 
But there were some stuff over the years, but it's become normalized now. But to your point, like people with different disabilities, like severe physical disabilities or mobility disabilities, this is a game changer, right? When you think about it, to be able to do stuff like turn my lights on and off and all sorts of different things. So I think that it has made a huge difference. And I know Amazon and Google have made investments in making sure those like their home device and the Echo and the Fire, all of those things are also accessible for sure. Yes. I mean, you know, when I'm talking with my friends about something like the Amazon Echo and we'll have conversations and they think I'm just a big old nerd <laughs> for having them around my apartment and speaking into the air as regularly as I do. Mm-hmm. But again, I think it's one of those things where if if you don't need it, you're not really thinking about it. Right. But for folks who can, like you're saying, folks who might not have use of their arms or legs or, or may not have them, or for people who are blind yep. or have other kinds of disabilities yep. that affects their mobility, yep. these can be complete life changers. Oh, absolutely. And so speaking of design and elegance, is there an Apple, so to speak, of assistive technology? Because when I think of something like the iPad and I compare it to like a Wacom tablet, I have friends who are designers, illustrators, they've been drawing for years and years. And, and while they still might use a Wacom, once the iPad reached a certain level, like the iPad Pro mm-hmm. and the latency involved with using the Apple Pencil and the things they were able to do with the iPad, the iPad was just so more elegant and simple to use than the Wacom tablet in many ways that once that iPad reached a certain level of, I guess, technical proficiency, it was a no-brainer. Like they just immediately made the change over because it was that much easier to use. When it comes to assistive technology, are there companies out there that are taking that, I guess, for lack of a better term, Apple-like approach of elegance Hmm. when it comes to how the assistive technology is made? Are there companies out there that are taking those things to heart? I would say the companies who are really innovating in the space are the mainstream companies, the Apples, the Googles. It's not necessarily the companies that are specializing in assistive technology that are doing the innovating necessarily. That I say that, and I know like friends of mine who, are, who work at assistive technology companies are going to be beating down my door saying, how could you say that? But for example, the screen reader I use, Jobs, they are absolutely innovating. They're pushing out new releases all the time, and they're creating new stuff to kind of make it easier for people like myself to use websites that have not been built to be accessible and providing that kind of stuff. So that from an innovation perspective, they're doing that. But when you think about the iPhones, the iPads, iMacs, all of the Macs, all of those things, those all have built-in assistive technologies. In them. So you and I could go to the Apple store and buy the next best, whatever it's going to be. But I can almost guarantee that the only difference is that you will use that device one way. I will just go in and turn on the accessibility features that I need. I won't need to go and buy a different piece of software or a different piece of assistive technology because Apple has built them in. On the Android space, they've got their own screen reader as well. and They've got their own screen enlargement and all that too. So the big companies have been building and innovating on and iterating on their own assistive technologies that come bundled with either the platform in the case of Android or in the actual devices when it comes to the iDevices. And even in Windows, I should say, Windows has a full-on accessibility. They've got their own screen reader and all kinds of stuff as well. So back in the day, if you and I were to talk about this before, we would probably be talking more about individual assistive technology companies. And again, I want to be clear. They are definitely out there. There are companies who just build screen readers. There's companies that just build screen enlargement software, all that kind of stuff. But what's really nice and what's happened is that those things have become mainstreamed and available in the same technologies that we all use. 
And I suspect that there are people, like, like we talked about before, there are people who are using screen readers who are not completely blind. Oh, yeah. They're using the screen reader maybe because they have dyslexia or another learning disability, and it's easier for them to hear as they're reading, things like that. So all of that stuff has become more normalized and mainstream. So the elegance, to me, is when I find a product where they have had accessibility features or assistive technology features built in. I've used some of the screen reading technology on the iPhone occasionally mm-hmm. when I just want to hear an article read yeah. to me, yep. right? Yep. And because the voices have gotten so good and so natural sounding, oh yeah, yeah, they've lost most of, if not all, of that robotic kind of sounding yeah. nature that can kind of take you out of like an essay or a story. Yeah, it all goes back to what you keep saying, which is that these features, this functionality that might be in its initial concept explicitly for accessibility for people with disabilities, a lot of these features end up benefiting everybody, which is so great. Yeah, when we introduced dynamic type on the LinkedIn iOS app, in our minds we were like we don't know what percentage of people will ultimately use it. And so what we thought about was, well, there's 15% of the world's population, conservatively, has a disability or impairment. It's going to be less than that. Just from a logic perspective, there's 15% of the world's population have disabilities or impairments. People who have low vision or visual impairments who would benefit from dynamic type is going to be a slice of that. When we looked at the numbers, we were pleasantly surprised it was almost double that number who were using that feature. And again, that's just a cool point Wow, that people are using it because there's people, like I said before, who don't consider themselves having a disability or impairment per se. They're just getting old. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. <laughs> they're getting old and they're, they're needing to have a large print. Oh yeah. I mean, I remember a few years ago when I walked my dad through how to enlarge the text on his iPhone. Mm-hmm. And he's a great guy. I love him to death. But he's not one who will necessarily even ask if a feature is available. I won't even know that he needs it, right? But I was watching him hold the phone pretty close to his face. And I I knew that you could enlarge the text because I'm a huge nerd. And I was like, Pops, like, you want to make the text bigger? And he was like, that's something I can do. And he was so happy about it for the rest of the day because he had no idea it existed. He was just getting up there in age. And it was a game changer for him. No, absolutely. Just one other example of something that is an accessibility an accessibility guideline, but also helps everyone. There's a, an accessibility guideline that says that a mobile device, it needs to support both landscape and portrait mode. So you need to be able to use, to be able to read content and to be able to interact with the mobile app, either on landscape or portrait. I just myself ignorantly thought that most apps automatically do that by default, but I've since learned that not every app is built the same. And not every app actually supports both landscape and portrait mode on a phone. Sure, that might have been something for people with disabilities, but I can only imagine that that is useful for everyone to be able to use a phone on whatever landscape or portrait you decide to use it on. Yes, yes. This seems to be a common theme, which I really want to just hammer home here for just a second. I mean, and you've been hammering it for 90 minutes, which I appreciate. I want to go back to that JPEG menu takeout thing, right? I can see it, but I still hate it. For a variety of reasons. Oftentimes it just, it loads terribly. I have to like turn my phone all over the place. I'm zooming in and out to try and read it. And why I bring that example up and all the other examples we've been talking about is 
When we help one, we help all, even if we don't understand in the main how helping that one person will eventually trickle down or trickle up to all of us. Because there are a lot of things I can imagine just anyone listening. I'm sure there are moments in which you have been frustrated as you've been navigating the internet or an app, etc. And you may not have a disability if you're listening to this podcast right now, or you may, right? But let's say you don't. I'm sure that there have been times in which you've been frustrated accessing the internet in some way. And that in and of itself is an accessibility issue of its own. Yep. Absolutely. Because if you can't access the internet, no matter whether or not you have a disability, it is an accessibility issue. And so the thing that I'm taking away from this talk, which I'm so appreciative of, Jenison, which I think just can apply to everybody, is that the easier we make the internet and the easier we make apps for people to navigate, no matter who they are or where they come from, we end up making it an easier and more productive and better internet for everybody. And that's just something that's really important to me. And, and I'm really glad that you worded this in such a way that makes it really, for lack of a better term, accessible for everyone to understand. Well, thanks very much. It's been great talking about it. It's interesting as, as we talk through it, how, like you said, I've even heard myself, even the examples I'm giving, I'm like, yeah, it is helping everyone. That's to your point. The web was made for everyone and apps too. So, and the easier and the more usable we make it, the better. I'd like to ask just two more questions. Sure. One that's specific to you and one that I end every show with, I ask every guest. So my, my second to last question is, what can a person without disabilities, let's say, do to be a better ally on issues like internet accessibility? Now, you've mentioned a few things like the hashtag on Twitter, which I believe is hashtag A11Y. And you've mentioned a couple other things through our talk, but is there anything else that you just wanted to note for people who've heard this show or people who were already aware of some accessibility issues sure. who just want to do a better job making the internet more accessible for folks who need it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you write a blog, blog about it, blog about what you learned from this podcast, just mainstreaming the concept of accessibility is a huge win. So like I said, if you have some favorite tech bloggers or other podcasters, ask them to potentially feature something on accessibility. Part of it is that. Uh, absolutely. I'm, of course, I'm going to say participate in Global Accessibility Awareness Day on the 20th of May. Check out the website closer to the date. It's funny, even last year, we, even though we had a pandemic last year, we had over 200 virtual events on Global Accessibility Awareness Day. So check that out as well. And if you want to get your own feel for a website or an app to just to gain a little bit of empathy, Go to your favorite website or app and try and do a complete transaction flow just using the keyboard alone. So you need to hold yourself back from using the touchpad or a mouse, but just use your tab key and your arrow keys and your enter key and use your favorite website and just do like one transaction path. Same thing on the mobile devices. Flip on a screen reader and just start like flicking around and see what you hear. See if you can order a meal or something like that or visit your favorite app and see if you can like stream your favorite station or do something like that. Part of it is if you as the listener get comfortable with it or at least gain some empathy, that's the first step. If you're a tech person and you're working on a project, just bring up accessibility and say, hey, like, are we going to be building this product? Are we going to design it or develop it with accessibility in mind? And be that champion with my thanks, of course. Jenison, if I didn't know better, I would think you were in cahoots with me because you said the magic word empathy, which ties directly into the question that I ask every guest. So I'm going to pose that question now to you because it is especially apropos. As individuals, we are limited in our time. We're limited in our energy oftentimes, and we're also limited in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person 
can't be thinking of every other person, every other group of people all the time. It's impossible, right? We've all got things we're working on. We have the causes we care about. And so it's impossible to think of everyone else all the time. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? Wow. I love that question. So for me, I want to give props to every engineer, every designer, every product manager who has gone beyond so that they, they have battled and won the battle to make what they've been building accessible. Because it's not, I don't want to give this rosy feeling that everyone's going to be open to accessibility. You've got to sometimes do a big convincing job to make that happen. And some people have gone to great lengths and had really difficult conversations in order to get accessibility, the priority it's gotten. So for anyone who's done that and who has had that difficult conversation, but who has won and ultimately made that product accessible and usable to a wider body group of people, I salute you because I know it's not easy. Well, thank you again, Jenison, for taking time out of your day. I know you're quite busy with all the different projects you're working on. This was fun. Thank you. Yeah. I had a really, really great time. And this conversation was fun for me in a couple of ways. One, because I just love talking about technology in general. And two, I loved the fact that I got to learn about something that is relatively new to me, but a topic that I think is really important for everyone to learn about. Because as we've said before, making the internet accessible to everyone helps everyone. So thank you for the work that you're doing at LinkedIn and around the world. And thank you for making accessibility an issue that is accessible to everyone who wants to become interested in it. So thank you so much, Jenison, for your time. Absolutely. And, and like I said, feel free to reach out. If you're listening on Twitter, I'm at, at Jenison. So you can find me there. But happy to just discuss more. You can find me elsewhere and contact me because it's all about, like you just said, making accessibility accessible. So if I can help out, happy to do it.